I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. And I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. And good morning. Welcome to What's Next. On today's program, we take a look at the history of Indigenous people in the United States with Dr. Keith Burrich. He's the author of We Remain, Race, Racism, and the Story of the American Indian. First of all, thanks for joining us, Professor Burrich. Thanks for having me. You know, when it comes to race and racism in our current conversation, American Indians get overlooked, don't they? Yeah, they get left out of the equation. What's happened to the uh, Native Americans is often attributed to, uh, for example, disease. You'll read in textbooks, 95% of the Indians died from disease. Well, that's not true, but that's the prevailing assumption by scholars and historians and and so on. Also, not only uh, are are they, uh, is it blamed on, on disease, more often than not, it's blamed on them. They're the problem. Okay, you know, and, and there's no question. I've been on a lot of reservations uh, throughout the country and, and, and over the last 25 odd years that alcohol, drugs are a, a persistent problem on Native, Native Americans. And it goes back to, you know, Benjamin Franklin one time said that, they, that we didn't have to do anything to the Indians. They'd wipe themselves out with rum. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, there, there are those kinds of problems. And when you go to a place like Rosebud or Pine Ridge or Crow, places that I, I go all the time, you see the poverty and you see the, the problems that inflicted on them, the troubles that have inflicted on them. And one of my students, when I took a group of students out to Rosebud for the first time, said, why don't they just leave? That was a tough question to answer. <laughs> and, and I'm not quite sure that I ever did really come up with an adequate answer. But my good friend Don Moccasin, who's on the cover of my book, uh, said, you know, they just want to be Indians. They don't want to leave. If they leave, they'll no longer be Indians. And so people have looked at, at Indians as somebody else's problem, as a problem that, you know, is in the flyover country. Right. You, know, you fly over to, to California and you look down and you there, there may be reservations, I mean, but who cares? It's land that's not worth living on anyway, and uh, we'll just let them go. And so when you think about things like affirmative action, you know, nobody thinks that it, it actually applies to them. Right. Moreover, everybody thinks that Indians are rich off casinos, which isn't true. Most Indian casinos don't make a lot of money, if anything. The, the one on Crow Reservation that I used to go to, that where I go all the time, and they had a res, uh, casino that went broke. Or they get uh, money from the government, a lot of money from the government, which they don't. So, you know, they, they get everything. And they get tax breaks. And, you know, they... Right. Uh, so we don't think of Indians needing affirmative action. And you just said it yourself. You've been to a lot of reservations kind of interested maybe if you could just help explore what it's like because we we know a little bit about 
the Seneca Nation. Obviously, it's it's local here, but you, you see little bits and pieces about some of the, these other locales around the country. T- tell us a little bit about your impressions yeah. and what you've seen. Well, the Seneca Nation is, by way of introduction, is, is doing quite well. I mean, they've got three casinos, and they've got Niagara Falls, which attracts people. I mean, they're, they're different than, say, the northern Cheyenne and that's, that's in, like, that's in good Montana. News, yeah, yeah. yeah. No. I mean, which has nothing near it, right. although they do have a casino that I've gone to. But that's different than, say, Buffalo. And the Seneca have done wonderful things with their money. Right. Like people keep complaining about them, and, and there's kind of a contention with Kathy Hochul right now and, and yeah. all that stuff. We can revisit that as we move through this <laughs> conversation. <laughs> uh, but they've done quite well, as have some other tribes around the country. But when you go to a place like Pine Ridge, Rosebud in South Dakota, Cheyenne River, all the Lakota tribes and, and Dakota tribes in, in thing. Crow, Fort Peck, Fort Berthold, seven different reservations in Montana, Wind River in Wyoming, you see an entirely different story. Hmm. Uh, the poverty is staggering. Nobody really know, knows how many poor people there are. On Pine Ridge, for example, the estimate is about 54%. Some people say 90%. They live on less than half of what the average American lives on. They're, they're Unemployment is, by and large, universal. Uh, they do have jobs in some of the tribal things, uh, agencies. They do in uh, work in some of the little mini-marts and, and so on that, that you have on reservations. But by and large, there's no, there's no jobs. Uh, there's no grocery stores. What grocery stores they do have, very often the food is expired. Hmm. I remember taking my students to an IGA on Crow. We were going off on one of my adventures, a, a buffalo hunt up in the mountains, and they, they were appalled because they wanted to get some things. This stuff is all expired. Hmm. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> welcome to the reservation. Right. Um, and, you know, they're, they're absent. They, 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 they don't have enough medical care. The in, Indian Health Service does do provide them with health care. And some of the hospitals are very nice. I've, I've been in a couple of them, uh, one in Arizona and one in Montana. I've also been to the one in Rosebud, which was so bad that a Nigerian doctor who was there working off his student loans told me he never seen anything like it, even in third world countries where he worked. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, that... That was a guy, I, I happened to bump into him in a restaurant, and uh, he, would, he we were talking about it, and he said he saw, never saw things like that there, uh, uh, like he saw in Rosebud. Pine Ridge is just as bad, and so are many of the others. So it's staggering, and it's paralyzing. And as a result, you know, there's no question that alcohol and drugs is a problem. Um, and... Um, that is another part of the paralysis that they suffer from. Sure, but it, it and it goes back really. Uh, it's generational. Hundreds I mean, of years, right. hundreds of years back to the 18th century, when we we traded with Indians. So Europeans traded with Indians in rum. Rum was the stock in trade. Uh, you gave them uh, rum, and then you gave, they gave you deer skins. They gave you uh, beaver pelts, and and all the rest of that stuff. And ultimately, they also gave you land. Um, hmm. There are a number of treaties that were signed under the influence. I had a, I had a conversation recently, um, a 
Tony Hiss. He actually spoke at uh, at um, Canisius College recently for the uh, Land Conservancy. His focus is is different. It's more on uh, environmental issues, but he talked about some of the successful environmental uh, trends that are coming out of Canada. And he said, though, I, one of the interesting things he said, he said the Canadians mistreated natives. There's no doubt about that. But the one thing they didn't do, like Americans did, is they didn't kick Indians off their land. No. Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, they did put them on, on reserves. Sure. Uh, so like Six Nations Reserve up by Branford is... Right. is uh, the, but the point of it is, though, the reservation concept in the United States has led to the types of, of yeah. results that you were talking about here. Yeah. Reservations evolved because you wanted their land, uh, and there were there were going to be conflicts. Uh, Chief Justice Marshall in McIntosh, Johnson versus McIntosh points that out. I mean, he that's where he uh, codifies the uh, doctrine of discovery into uh, American law. But he also goes through a whole narrative about how Indians need to be separated from whites, that they can't live next to each other, they can't be in the same neighborhood. They uses that term neighborhood. Really? Yeah. Uh, and oh, it's it's a it's the part of the that that I, it's in my book. Sure, actually. sure. It's a part of that that the decision that nobody reads because they're interested in the doctrine of discovery and rightfully right. so. And he he pointed that out. Well, that was true. Most Americans believe that. And what do you do with them? Well, you take away their land and put them on reserves. And you station army forts around them to keep make sure that they don't go off the reservation. The Army Appropriation Act of 1851, which sort of became the the guideline, provided the guidelines for a reservation, said Indians could not leave their reservation without permission. Wow. And there was an army fort near all of them to think. If you look at a map, look at a map of especially the West, and you'll see, you know, Fort Smith, Fort Peck, Fort Berthold, Fort Hall, Fort Niobrara. <laughs> Those forts were all there to keep the Indians on the reservation. And if they went off, uh, well, that was a, a problem. And I want to – I'm glad you brought up the, the idea about the forts because I want to get into that in a different vein in just a little bit. But you also brought up the Doctrine of Discovery. We had a conversation about that previously on this program, but I think it's worth revisiting because, again, this is something that really explains a lot about especially white people's attitudes when it comes to race. This is something that is deeply embedded in our history. Yeah. Well, I, I give you a brief, give our listeners a brief history. The Doctrine of Discovery was promulgated by Popes, I can't remember their exact names, but 1453 and 1493, uh, part of that, that 1493 uh, uh, promulgation was because of conflicts between Spain and Portugal and, and so on. Uh, but what it said was that basically non, as, as, as the Europeans were finding out more and more about the world, including Africa uh, and then eventually uh, the Western Hemisphere, they were encountering non-Christian people, uh, pagans. And, you know, pagan is the word that Christians used for people without religion. Right. And they were uh, not only pagans, but they were largely 
dark-skinned. And these, the doctrine of discovery said that basically Europeans had the right to go out and uh, take and Christianize uh, uh, non-Christian lands, which meant basically the rest of the world. Right. Uh, and, and Europeans followed that. And yes, it was supposed to be for only Catholic countries, or that that was all there was in the 15th century. Uh, but Queen Elizabeth adopted it for England, and they went out and ex exported this idea that they could uh, conquer and exploit non-Christian lands, especially lands of dark-skinned people who had habits that repulsed Europeans. Uh, Explore that a little bit more. You yeah, say repulse, okay. but you would Well, you they not only that. looked different, sure. they did, and they had different kinds of characteristics, but the way they dressed, they were always half-naked. Hmm. Yeah, they were always described as half-naked. They were savages, cannibals. The term cannibals was coined at that time by, I don't think by Columbus, but by Spanish explorers in the Caribbean. It's a derived from the word for Carib Indians. Mm -hmm. uh, they were cannibals. They were fornicators because they uh, engaged in sexual activities that were that the, the church uh, and the churches uh, abhorred. Um, they they were heathens. They had all kinds of heathen rites and rituals and and so on. Everything about them, but especially the color of their skin, set them off, and that's the essence of racism. Racism, you you you. Even though race is really not a scientific concept, it, in the, it's a popular construct, social construct. It's based on skin color and other kinds of characteristics, and you associate those things with certain kinds of um, personal behavioral characteristics. So they were, they 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 ate improperly. They they their marriages were impermanent. They. They lived in uh, in, in uh, scattered villages and so on. I mean, they, they just they didn't have the kind of intellectual and moral uh, 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 characteristics that Europeans pri uh, as Europeans uh, judged it to be. Ju yeah, judged them on, and uh, the result is is that you could do what you want with them, and that's what the doctrine of discovery basically said. They're non-Christians. They're pagans. They're heathens. They're Fornicators. That's a popular term that, <laughs> that, wow. that that the priests use. And therefore, they need to be Christianized. And if they won't be Christianized, well, what do you do with them? You force it on them. Yeah. You force it on them and you end up exterminating them uh, in many cases. And that's what basically happened in the Caribbean. Uh, it, it, you know, the, the most of the Caribs, the Indians of uh, the Tainos uh, of, of the Caribbean were wiped out. Wow. And you know, they, there's some left over, but basically they were wiped out. And that was used, that idea, argument or was used to justify the same kind of tactics around the world. As I mentioned earlier, you never met a Tasmanian. Right. Because the British wiped them out in 1820s. Uh, the Spanish did it in Argentina. The Belgian Germans did it in Namibia. Uh, it, it was a. The way of exporting um, this kind of racist racism around the world, and Indians in North America were the victims, uh, and and the result was a, a decline in population that was you know horrendous, and and in the end, uh, what I would consider genocidal. 
Dr. Keith Burrich is with us uh, this morning, Professor Emeritus at Canisius College, the author of We Remain, Race, Racism, and the Story of the American Indian. Um, I, I want to just to make sure we revisit one key element of the doctrine of discovery. It has been re- relatively recently repudiated by the Pope. Yes, it has. That's uh, a, a positive development, but there's it lingers and, beyond. And in America, it hasn't been. Uh, it was, you know, as I said, it was codified in, into American law by by uh, Chief Justice Marshall in, I think it's 1823, but the Johnson versus McIntosh. And it's been reiterated uh, since then, uh, most recently by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, now, just, just jumping back then a little bit, like you were talking before about you know, Fort Smith and the forts of, uh, that were set up <laughs> of, the, of the of out west. It's also interesting to note that, like you were saying, the forts were set up near the reservations to make sure or to help ensure that the Indians of that particular locale didn't move on. And it's interesting to also note that these forts became such a part of the American image in the 20th century through media, whether it was TV, whether it was movies. Uh, let's go on. Let's let's talk about that a little bit and how that became so ingrained. Well, yeah, um, th- th- there were any number of forts. And yeah, as I said, look at a map uh, right. and, and you'll see them there. Fort Defiance on Navajo, uh, Fort Hall up in uh, Idaho uh, near Jackson Hole, as a matter of fact. Um, then Fort Smith, Fort Niobrara, you, you can find them all over the place. And the forts were there, and um, they were there to keep Indians on the, the uh, reservation or to make sure they didn't, as most Americans, go off the reservation, mm. uh, go on a war path. Uh, but, of course, by the, by the end of the 19th century, most Indians were on, on reservations, and they weren't going anywhere because they, they, the conditions were uh, so appalling and their population was dropping. Uh, so the forts really served to put the last of uh, the Indians, like uh, the Northern Cheyenne and the Lakota, after Little Bighorn uh, uh, battle and, and Nez Perce from uh, uh, Idaho, back on the reservation. But mo- by and large, they were there to keep them on the reservation and and also to to act as sort of police. One of the things that the reservations did. Uh, that, wa- that was to rob the Indians of their basic rights. But, you know, that meant uh, stripping them of their religion, uh, forcing the kids to go into school and to learn English and, and Christianity because that was what education was all about, uh, enforcing uh, other kinds of rules. And, and the, the government had a whole checklist of rules that the Indians had to follow. Uh, including they couldn't practice their own religions. You may not know this, but they couldn't practice their own religion until 1978. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah, that was under Carter, under President Carter finally reading them. Yeah, they couldn't. Uh, now, that doesn't mean they didn't. Uh, and uh, Right, but, but not to be able to do it in a public yeah, fashion. So, so a lot of them are at night because they, they that was one way you could do it. Was, right. It was hidden in, in night, um, at, at night. I've been on uh, at at the uh, ceremonies that are hidden, that are conducted in the middle of the night um, because that was 
how they learned how to do it and preserve some of their, their ceremonies. I, you've intrigued me, though. What was, what was that like then? That, that, well, that sense was, of well, shroud of, of secrecy them, but the one that, When I tell a story in the book about the Navajos, um, <clears throat> I, got a, I was at a, a conference at, on the, at the Navajo Community uh, College uh, in Salie, uh, which is in sort of northeastern uh, uh, Arizona. Okay. And uh, Chinle is the closest town. And the guy invited me and, and, and said, why don't you come tonight and go to this uh, ceremony? I had no idea what it was. I had no idea where I was going. I got the rough example, uh, rough uh, directions. But I finally found it. And it was kind of funny that uh, how I did. But at any rate, uh, you got there. And it was, it was in October. So it was cold. And that's up on the Colorado Plateau. So that's it's a little higher up there, a little colder. Uh, and um, there was a, a healing ceremony going on, and they had a guy in a in a house, a little house, uh, and he was visited by Kachinas, as they were called. Uh, the the uh, Navajo and Hopi have these. Uh, um, how do I describe them? I don't know. Uh, well, the other Kachina dolls, they're 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 based on Kachinas. They're they're. Costumes. So, okay. Yeah, I guess the best way to describe them, the costumes that they wear, and they come in and out. They come in and out of the 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 residence and perform a perform a ceremony. Go back to their place, and and it was amazing because this this place was packed. It's cold. It's in the middle of the night. I I left at two in the morning, and uh, lucky I I don't even know how I found my way back after <laughs> getting there. Uh, and there were little kids. Older people in wheelchairs. There were fires to keep people people warm. Uh, they had a little refreshment stand, um, and uh, it was an amazing uh, experience. I had no idea what was going on, right? And I wasn't going to ask because it's none of my business. Uh, but I was amazed at how a community came together to heal one of their members uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, in in cold weather like this, little children, the elderly, and I thought to myself, this is what a community is all about. It comes together to take care of themselves, and that's what Indians are all about in many ways. That's what sovereignty means to Indians. Seneca have a word for it or a phrase for it. We carry our own water, uh, and that's what the Indians, the Navajo, were 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 doing. They were taking care of their own. It's a far different image than what we saw in movies and in yeah, TV it shows. Is, yeah, it, it's, it's different. And um, I've had other experiences like that, but it was, it was one of the most moving experiences. Even though I had no idea what was going on, I had no idea where I was, I couldn't find it again if, right. <laughs> if I tried. <laughs> and the people were very nice to me. I was the only white guy there. Right. And... Uh, they were very nice to me, and they sort of explained things to me. Uh, but it was just wonderful to see these people coming together to take care of themselves, uh, you know. And and that's an uh, that's what you know they that's essential to their communities. They take care of themselves in times of peace, in times of war, in times of sickness, in times of health, and you know celebrations and in mourning. I mean, they they are there for each other. Is that part of what has driven you to do this research? You're a scholar, and scholars have that 
and we we think of scholars with these these intellectual curiosities that they have to follow. But it, when you're talking there about this ceremony and the, the community coming together, there was a, a certain light in your eye. And I'm wondering if that just has has just fueled your passion for this a little well, bit more. Well, I am not the same person I was 25 years ago or so. Okay. okay. Um, I it's changed me a great deal, and and I've had students who have gone out west with me because I did take students groups out uh, for almost you know, 16, 18 years, uh, sometimes two or three a summer to various reservations. They all come back and say, you know, this is life changing, mm. and it's changed me. I I. Now, understand the answer to that question, why don't they just leave? They find a joy in being Indian. And it's something we can't understand. And it's tied very much to their land and as well as to their, their, their traditions and, and rituals and so on. But uh, they, they, uh, uh, they just want to be Indians and to be left alone. Like you said, it's something we can't understand. Is it something, though, that we need to respect, something that we do need to yes. recognize? Yeah, we have to. Because um, I've, I've had people, other faculty members saying, you know, why don't they, why don't they just leave? Why don't, why, other scholars. I, yeah, well, <laughs> not necessarily. But, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. And, and they've said, well, why, uh, why don't they want to become like us? Well, that's exactly it. They don't want to be like us. Their values are different than ours. Their way of looking at things is different than ours. I have a chapter in a book, uh, uh, A Different Way of Thinking, Seeing, be, uh, Believing. I, I forget the exact title, but it's, it, it, it points out that they, they don't see things the same way we necessarily see things. Um, I, I um, could give you a, a lot of examples of that, but my friend Don Moccasin, he saw things in nature that I never would, really? Would see, yeah, uh, and he interpreted them differently than than I would. Um, Can you give me uh, that's that's well, wow, we that's a, really we at the uh, at the Little Bighorn commemoration. It was a there was a uh, Indian monument being put up at the in at the, cause we always commemorated uh, Custer, even though he's the loser. Right. Uh, <laughs> he ended up an antagonist, dead. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we never com- commemorated the winners, uh, right. the Indians. <laughs> right. Right. And so there was a commemoration there, and I took uh, Don and uh, his grandma, Grandma Little Elk. Uh, and a bunch of people from Rosebud, as well as a whole bunch of students, and one of the craziest things I ever did in my life because it was unbelievably complicated. But <laughs> we got to a, a, a ceremony, um, and it was by the Northern Cheyenne, and uh, I, they were singing and, and commemorating the Northern Cheyenne, the Cheyenne that had died at, at, at the Little Bighorn Battle. And uh, all of a sudden, this dust devil comes in. And, you know, if you've ever been on the high plains, that's not unusual. It's high, dry, dusty, you know, you see them. And he just he just nudged me and he said, the spirits are here. Hmm. They're listening to us. I said, oh, well, that's another way of looking at a dust devil. Right. Uh, he he would see it. We came, we were coming down that same trip from the medicine wheel in the upper, in the, uh, Bighorn Mountains, which is up about 10,000 feet. And we're coming down, and there was a, a, a rainbow in the sky. And it was like a flag, not an arch, uh, not a, one that arched from horizon to horizon. 
And he just looked at me and he said, they heard us. Thunder, thunder clouds are the thunderers. They're coming to give us rain uh, and, and so on. I mean, they, they have a different way of looking at, at things than we do uh, and seeing things in nature that we would never, uh, never see or understand. Uh, and I, I learned a lot from them uh, to see things, dif- try to see things differently. If enough, I couldn't be like them or understand right. it fully. Right. I, I so you said when you see a thunderstorm, now you think differently. Oh, I think of the thunders. Yeah. yeah. I remember sleeping in the Black Hills, and, and uh, we were in the middle of a rainstorm. Uh, we were in a teepee, and uh, I was laying there with my head on the uh, ear to the ground, uh, going trying to go to sleep. And there was lightning, boom, 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 and the ground was shaking. And all of a sudden, I knew what he meant by the horse nation is coming. Wow. You know, it's, it could be the buffalo, it could be the horses, but you know, it's a different way of, of looking at things. Scientists have their own explanations, and I certainly respect that. Sure. I, I, um, but it kind of changes maybe your appreciation for the experience. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they see spirits in everything, and it's a wonderful way of looking at at the world, uh, far different than what white people do. Sure, mm-hmm. and our as you travel to the different reservations and you got to know the different uh, native peoples, uh, you saw the connections. Then uh, it was not a, a you know they weren't necessarily universal. No, they're not. Yeah, there is but... a, there, yeah, I know people say, well, they're Native American religion, Native American philosophy. It's all they're all different. Yes. And they all have their own languages. So, you sure. know, their their words are different yep. in describing things. Uh the Navajo have uh, you know, uh, everything in the Navajo on Navajo has some sort of spiritual connection. Mm. You know. I, I use the example that, you know, we there's a ro- a mountain that we crossed over. And there's a spring, natural spring, and we stop there to drink the water. And why is that there? Well, that's because the spirits put it there for travelers. Mm. You know, and every place on the that reservation has some sort of spiritual meaning. Four different mountains surround it. Those are all four different four rivers. I mean, there's there's all kinds of ways of looking at nature differently differently than we do. So when they see a mountain being desecrated for mining or whatever you know it's 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 not just the loss of the land it's the the spiritual meaning that they associate with spirituality associate with that particular mountain that's why i never took kids to uh, mount rushmore oh it's a desecration it's like spray painting a synagogue or a church the mountain was doing quite well all by itself, you know, before they came along and decided to carve those four guys into it. And um, so I wouldn't take them because the Lakota never agreed to that. Right. And uh, for them, you know, that's the Black Hills are like their cathedral. And they get everything from it. Everything comes from the Black Hills. And, and, they, and they emerged there. Their emergence story is from there. They. I mean, they, they associate all kinds of things with the Black Hills. And so what do you do? You go and you desecrate their cathedral. And put uh, what could be described as four white imperialist <laughs> images on there. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> all of them. Not one of them liked Indians. <laughs> you know, um, I'm going to turn this around that a little bit. How about for you, though? It, it sounds, obviously, you have this book, you had other um, 
another book, at least one other book uh, that we can talk about a little bit as well. But how about, obviously, you've been able to show enough respect and to have people embrace you and take you in because that's not always the case, right? And understandably no, it, it, so. They, they are. I was warned by some of my friends here, the, the, the native friends here, that there's the, the close communities. Uh, and so it's not very easy, I, I would say. But I'll tell you a story that I tell in the book at, at the beginning because it's, it's, it's probably the most important thing I learned because I had to unlearn everything. And so now I'm starting my education again. I was looking for a place to take students. I thought I had one in Navajo. It didn't work out. Uh, I go to a, a meeting, and somebody says, well, talk to this guy over at the Oglala Community College on Pine Ridge. And um, I, I said to him, um, I called him, and uh, he was very nice, and I said, I want to bring students out, uh, Pine Ridge. or whatever. He said, uh, well, you don't want to come here and paint, uh, paint things and clean things up and fix things up. And he said, I said, no, I, I, I want a cultural immersion program for them in the summer. And he said, good, you people have helped us enough. <laughs> <laughs> that was a shot across my bow, but it was from that point I realized they're, they're different than we are. Right. And, and that different than I am, and I have to respect and learn to, to see them from their see things from their perspective, try to understand it. I can't be an Indian. I don't want to. I'm not a wannabe. There, I've known a lot of wannabes, and I've seen them in action, and they they're troubling because they they try to copy things, uh, native things, and they do it all wrong. They'll learn languages and they'll mispronounce things. <laughs> you know, they they almost comical in, right. in many respects. So I'm not a wannabe, but I learned to see things from their perspective. And that was the first time when I really realized that I had to unlearn everything that I ever knew. And uh, uh, so by doing that, I think I've gotten their, their respect and trust. And uh, from the Seneca and the Tuscarora all the way out to the Crow and, and everywhere in between just about, I've, I've made, been able to make friends and uh, learn from them. They have a lot to teach us. Right. I think that's worth worth talking about that because, you know, we talk about, you know, the environment is such a, a key part of uh, most discussions, I would say, political, philosophical, societal, global discussions for sure. But the Native Americans, you know, they they have a template that I think in, in many ways could be a way of, of moving forward. Yeah. Um, well, they, you know, for them, land is everything. I mean, it's, it's where, you know, in, in, uh, I like to put it this way. I don't know whether they would necessarily agree, sure. but the way I've always explained, I try to explain it in class, uh, their, their culture is organic. It grows out of the land. Uh, if you, if you look at the Lakota and Plains Indians in general, the Pawnee and, and Cheyenne, they live in, in teepees. Now, we always wanted to get them out of teepees and in the log homes, and many of the treaties required that, wow. you know, you know and, and paid them to do that sort of thing. And we say, uh, but teepees, uh, you know, how do you how do you live in a teepee? You know, um, and what about the snowstorms and all sorts of things like that? 
Well, the fact is, is that the teepees are like, I, I like to think of them as the modern day or the old, old-fashioned RVs. Okay. <laughs> well, what, what, you know, you, you, you're, you camp in a place, you take advantage of the whatever resources, water, for example, especially on the high plains, you got to always, or you're, you're looking for buffalo or whatever, uh, and things get fouled because you have a, a thing, you move. And you leave the land the, the way it was, and that's true for that, you know teepees, which uh, are actually quite comfortable. I just think I, I, okay. I, I've, uh. I've stayed and put up a number of them. Uh, I don't know if I've ever been in one in the middle of winter, but, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I have been in cold weather. Uh, at any rate, um, but Indians here too in in the east did the same kinds of things. They moved seasonally, and that drove settlers crazy. Why are they moving all the time? Well, they moved to one hunting ground in the winter and in the fall, the planting grounds in the in the summer, and and so on. Uh, this this area gets used up because of the timber. We've used the timber. We'll let it grow back, and uh, and and move to another area. Uh, that that's their way of looking at land. It's to be used, uh, but not owned. And 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 you know, there's when you go into national parks, you just leave. What's what's the how, the how does it go? I can't think. You know, take with you whatever you you, right. you brought in. Right? Well, right. that's what their idea is. You know, leave it the way it was. Right. And uh, they move around, and it just drove people crazy. And that's why you put them on reservations. Hmm. And that's one of the things that created the most problems for them because all of a sudden now they're sedentary. Um. There, there are any number of fact things that came into play as a result of that. Diseases, um, reservations didn't have adequate water, uh, toilet facilities, uh, uh, and so on. Um, they they stayed in one place, um, and and as a result, their their diets were terrible. Um, they had to change their diets to to. Uh, uh, to the rations provided by the agency rather than pursuing the kinds of food that they did n- normally. Um, and the result of this, uh, the populations continued to decline even after the wars were over. Um, and, and part of that is because the reserva- they were put on reservations, made to sit still, uh, and as a result, you know, even today, alcohol and, and drugs create problems for them still to this to this day because of that tradition of um, taking away their right to move. And, and that was the law. They weren't allowed to go anywhere. Hmm. Dr. Keith Birch is our guest this morning. His most recent book, We Remain, Race, Racism, and the Story of the American Indian. We talked, uh, touched on this, I think, before we went on the air, so I want to make sure that we, we get to this because, you know, We've, we've, I've kind of vaulted us into the reservation world here a little bit and kind of uh, bypassed a certain uh, a lot of the history that, that <laughs> went into this, obviously, and there's a lot to know. But but you were telling me, you were giving me numbers about the number of Amer- um, Indians that were in the United States or in America, what would become the United States, right. North America, and how that population dwindled and and many have brushed that off as simply disease. a product of disease yeah. but that that is not the case no it's not um I mean, the, the, you shouldn't take 
uh, shouldn't write off diseases. They right. they they killed a lot of Americans. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, the uh, smallpox epidemic uh, ripped through North America and killed whites and Indians in the in the 1770s during the Revolution. Uh, George Washington's troops at Valley Forge got it. Uh, so disease is important. Um, but smallpox doesn't kill everybody, hmm. and nor do other diseases. And um, so you can't say that these disease is, is the, the problem. There were varying numbers here before the Europeans came, before Columbus, before the settlements in, in North America. Um, 10, 12, 15 million. I, I always sort of split the difference and say around 12 million. Okay. Um, so about 1,500, 12 million. By 1890, 1900, the census, and, and I'm not, I said 1890 before, it may have been 1900 census, but there were 247,000 left. Wow. And you can't blame that all on disease. Uh, slavery, the enslavement of, of Indians from the very beginning, they were the first to be enslaved uh, and shipped off to the Caribbean. And as I mentioned to you in, in earlier, uh, Bermuda, there's still a colony of, of uh, the descendants of Indian slaves on, on, in one of the islands in Bermuda, uh, slavery. But the other issue is even with slavery, the slave raids that were used to capture slaves decimated their population in so many different ways. Uh, took away their shelter, their food, and uh, since women and children were the prized slaves, uh, that ultimately is going to affect our fertility. And one of the things I bring about in my I bring out in my book is that you know fertility rates drop, and in some cases tribes would have to be absorbed by other tribes because they wouldn't have enough genetic variability, diversity to reproduce. Mm. You know, when if your numbers drop and everybody's related, you can't right. you, you can't right. have children. Uh, they knew that, uh, and and so you know tribes. Some tribes that were around, there were hundreds, hundreds. You know, there's still 800 uh, out there, 500 and some recognized, and 200 and some not recognized. But there were more than that, and um, they disappeared, or were absorbed by by other tribes. Um, so. Uh, to me, the the real issue is the the total warfare that began almost immediately in 1500, uh, with when the explorers were yeah coming. when the explorers came. Well, the traders, yeah, traders would come along, coasters as they were called. They would trade, and they would legitimate trade. You know, furs, uh, deer skins were the were the, the real stock in trade. Uh, that's where the term buck comes from. Okay. Uh, the, uh, buckskin was was an important uh, commodity. Right. And uh, they, they did that. And then, of course, they also introduced rum, uh, which wasn't the other stock in trade. But um, uh, they also engaged in slave trading. Columbus took slaves back with him after his first trip. That set the pattern for the kinds of raids and assaults on Indian villages and, and communities for the next 400 years or so. The last, and people don't believe this, but the last Indian massacre of, of any sort was in 1923. That's 100 years ago. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> you know, people don't believe that when I tell them that because they think that, you know, the Indian wars were 
uh, well, the Indians went on the warpath. They attacked uh, settlers and wagon trains and all the rest of that stuff. Uh, but um, and, and the cavalry came to the rescue. But as I mentioned earlier, the Indians had to be protected from the cavalry. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> and, and that was the case. And uh, so there were uh, it was a con uh, combination of things. Disease, certainly. I don't I don't try to dis 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 dismiss that disease. Warfare, starvation, lack of shelter. Um, when when the cavalry attacked Indian villages, they destroyed everything. Horses, dogs, meat stored up, uh, any other kinds of uh, stores that they had, and their shelters. Well, what happens if you're in North Dakota, and and General Sully comes after you at uh, Whitestone Hill? And is that South Dakota? Well, one way or another. <laughs> Dakotas. I, I get those mixed up. <laughs> right. uh, and well, it was only one Dakota at that time. That's right. right. So uh, and and he wipes out uh, tens of thousands of pounds of buffalo meat that they had accumulated, and um, their 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 horses and dogs. Literally, they went out, hunted down survivors, and. Uh, uh, Left the, the 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 ones that could escape escape barely with what they they sort of had on their backs literally. Right. Uh, we're, we're talking about uh, being left to being exposed in a North Dakota winter. Mm. So. And you also mentioned uh, before we went on the air. We had a great conversation before we went on the air, but also the idea that Indian slaves overlooked in a lot of ways, but were very much. In existence in California, yes, which was uh, uh, came in as a free state in 1850. Right, it did. That was part of the Compromise of 1850. It came in as a free state, but Indians were continued to be enslaved, and and finally they ended it. I think legally in 1867 or something like that after the Civil War, but in point of fact, and and the studies have shown that they they were kept in slavery. Uh, in what was known as debt peonage. Mm. You know, you owed money, therefore you couldn't do anything. You couldn't go anywhere and, and until really the 20th century. I don't know whether that's true or not, but, uh, yeah, California was, there's a book called The, the Murder State. It's about the, Calif the way Californians treated the Indians. Um, they, it was, uh, you know, horrendous kinds of things that were done to them. Um, the Spaniards, by the way, started it, so they're... It's not just America. Sure, sure. Oh, yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, and the Mexicans too, because they took over the, from Spain. But uh, once you know, once we discovered gold, then it was Americans, and they they really decimated the native population. Any number of massacres, uh, the number of wars that there were out there. They had all kinds of nuns. I, I, I list them in my book, but they had war one war after another against Indians and. The victims uh, were either killed or enslaved. Hmm. You, you mentioned a, a book there just now. We, we'll mention yours again. We remain race, racism, and the story of the American Indian by Dr. Uh, Keith Burrage. Um, what's a? These are that. There's a way to, to get started to, to know a little bit more about the history of, we'll call it, U.S. Indian relations. But how? Would you suggest? And you, you've had you had students for many years, that you probably found ways of 
engaging them, bringing them into a better understanding of of things. Our listeners now are your students, Dr. Birch. (laughs) Oh, boy. Take us us into that. How how would you advise or encourage people to try to take those steps to a better understanding of what this is really all about? Well, there there are a number of ways, but... um... One is, you know, is to do reading, not just my book, but there are plenty right. of books out there. That uh, uh, when I first started this back in the 1990s, um, there was nothing. All the books were outdated uh, and and inaccurate. Um, today there are plenty of, of, of books that are available. Uh, in Buffalo, you're you're kind of blessed. You have four different reservations, uh, and they all have ceremonies. Uh, and and I just last weekend I was at the powwow at uh, Salamanca. Okay. Um, if you want to understand the fact that Indians aren't going anywhere, <laughs> right? And they're very happy to be Indians, and they they very proud of it, uh, and find like I said they find a joy in being Indian. Go to a powwow. Okay. Especially the little kids, the tiny tots they're called, and there's there's a grand a grand entry at the beginning of the powwow where all the dancers come in and they're, they're by different groups. But at the end is generally the tiny tots. And if you want to see that the Indians are still here and aren't going anywhere, take a look at those little kids. They are delights. First of all, they're cuter than heck. But secondly, uh, <laughs> their outfits and so on, and they're trying to emulate their parents, you know, they're doing all sorts of things. And the, it's just wonderful to see. And there's a, something called the, the commemoration or the remembrance of the Kinsua Dam down in, in Salamanca when the Allegheny River was da- dammed up and uh, flooded all of the Seneca lands. That's, that's going on. There are things on reservations that are open to the public that people can, can find out, and they're all online. You know, it's one of the one right. of the great things. <laughs> you may not like the social media necessarily all that much, but that's one good thing, uh, one good side of it. And uh, so you can do you can uh, uh, learn from from them. Yeah, I actually was out as you were talking about that. It reminded me, I was invited and graciously accepted an uh, invitation to uh, the town of Wanda Seneca right. uh, uh, Reservation or Nation uh, near Akron uh, last year, and uh, for their uh, their history association held an annual event, and I got to have corn soup, which was surprisingly tremendous. Uh, you know, it was just, you know, great to, to to enjoy something. And that's, you know, again, the idea that these are traditions that are that are incredibly old. Yes, and and they're willing to share them with you. Right, they they want you to know their story, uh, and they want to tell it themselves. That's one of the things I did. Like I said, I had to unlearn everything I learned uh, new, but I also had to learn. Right. And um, I had some. I, I lucked out. I just met people, and and Jackie Labonte from Six Stations is a Mohawk up in Canada, and she introduced me to people and took me to different kinds of ceremonies. And um, uh, so so when I when I started uh, doing this, I said, you know, I can't really teach this by myself. I have to bring in Indians. So I used to bring in, I had speakers from Canada, from South Dakota, from, <laughs> from Pennsylvania, from all over who came. And, you know, I'd sometimes get 200 people at a, I held them at night. Uh, I, and I get 200 people on campus uh, to, to uh, hear these things. One time we had a big, big 
ceremony. We're dancing and uh, in the old church, uh, St. Vincent's Church up there, we were do, dancing all through the aisles and everything. Uh, it was, it, we've had some, I had some wonderful things. And that was one of the things I learned was that you have to learn from them. Right. And they came and they were more than willing to uh, share and to teach us. And when I take, you asked about uh, when I go out to reservations, how I've been received. Every time I took groups out to any reservation, people were more than willing to help and to talk and to teach. Um, and uh, it, they are closed communities in a certain sense, but they're, they're more than willing to help uh, understand um, what what the, the, their history and their culture and um, I think it's you know um, they are some of the most generous people I've ever met in my life and they've got nothing to give in many cases but they're generous too uh, um, I tell a story about giveaways which were outlawed, by the way. <laughs> Giveaways were outlawed. <laughs> yeah. What, what you have is a ceremony. It's your birthday. Well, you know, we're all used to getting gifts for, for our birthday, right? right? Not them. They give gifts. And you go to giveaways, and some of the big giveaways, uh, are, which were outlawed because well, the, the government thought, well, that, that prevents them from accumulating wealth because mm. they give everything away. Mm. A person dies, they have a giveaway, so they give away his stuff. Um, well, at one point, I the, one of the first ones I ever went to was on Rosebud at St. Francis. Um, and they came around, and they had shopping baskets full of stuff. And you're supposed to take something, and we ended up with all kinds of stuff, which we couldn't bring back on the airplane. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we had to find a way of getting rid of it. You can't say no. You have right. to accept it. You have to have your own giveaway. <laughs> but one of the things that I got was toilet paper. Oh. That's the title of one of my chapters in the book, is toilet paper. And I, I sort of chuckled to myself, and then I started thinking, you know, for these people— Toilet paper is a luxury in many cases. There are no stores. It's hard to get. It's you know, it costs money. It's an essential. I mean, just think about what happened at beginning of COVID when everybody thought they were going to be out of toilet paper. Remember? Right. There were runs on, on toilet paper, and in including me, I was running to Wegmans to get the toilet paper for our family. Uh, it, it's an essential commodity, but they they didn't necessarily have it, and I I thought. Boy, that, that's great that they're doing this, but they're giving away all of these things to to you. Um, and toilet paper may not seem like a, a, that important, but it is. And they give you uh, towels and other kinds of things that you, you might need, uh, necessities that you'd have to spend money for, and people uh, give them away. And uh, they sometimes, they'll save up a year accumulating things to to give away at their and of course that's it's one way of impressing people you know right yeah. the more you give away the more impressive you are but sure. it's, it's the the point is is that they give they are generous wow. give 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 away everything and like i said the government tried to stop it and did have the laws against giveaways on reservations 
I think I think that might be a great place to end our conversation. Is I think that <laughs> <laughs> the government was was against generosity. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Burge's book is called We Remain: Race, Racism, and the Story of the American Indian. You've been listening to What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD One Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.